I'm Todd A, and you are Taylor Trask. Back at it. How are you doing, Todd? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. It's good to be back, uh, kind of in doing the podcast again. Um, I'm looking yeah, I'm forward ex- to today's episode, especially. This has been one that we've been talking about for a while. Yeah, I love this. So just to briefly recap, um, we recorded six episodes, which uh, where we kind of covered all topics of pop culture and geek culture and movies and comic books and stuff. Um, we love doing that. But each episode was sort of all over the map and we ran a little wild. So we decided <laughs> to start a new season, call this season one, call the other one season zero. And in season one, we are tackling one subject at a time. Uh, and uh, so this is our second episode and we are doing spy movies, um, which was a topic suggested by you. Yep. Uh, you're a big fan of one uh, franchise that we will get to in a minute. I'm a big fan of another franchise that we will get to in a minute. Um, but we, we thought it was just so like so fertile a topic because, um, <laughs> as you pointed out to me, we have had as many spy movies this year or more yep. than we've had superhero movies. It's um, bizarre to consider. I mean, yeah, and I, I, there's just this enduring appeal of, of the spy movie genre. Um, and then you pointed out this great thing about it, that, how that genre has, has gotten broad, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, we should we should maybe start by just asking, you know, what is a spy movie to what should what should a spy movie be to you, Todd A? Like, what do you think a spy movie is today, and what do, what are you expecting out of that as a format or as a genre? I think there's a, there's such a great parallel with superhero movies because um, in both we you know presume generally speaking there is a good guy who has to operate a little bit outside the law in order to tackle the bad guys um and and that's just something we root for you know it's like a guy that's kind of got to go around the bureaucracy or something to get things done and Mm -hmm. does it have to be a vigilante or does it have to be a a disconnected entity or a disconnected persona because it seems like that that is sort of a i mean you get a lot of the modern day spy movies that have the the man against the system or you know he was betrayed by the system and now he's but you know kind of that dirty not dirty hair but just sort of that that Clint Eastwood vibe, you know, yeah. to, uh, does that, is that kind of a prerequisite for you? Do you look for that? No, I wouldn't say so because um, like, like you were saying, you know, I mean, you, you had said this when we were off air, which was that this genre has become so broad that we can include something like Kingsman and also mm-hmm. something like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which we both loved, mm-hmm. um, at least the recent Gary Oldman version. Um, and what I like, like they're different, uh, you know, I like the James Bond movies uh, for one kind of reason um, where he does go outside the system. You know, he's got to kind of, you know, I, I, I hesitate to use the word vigilante, but I, I know what you mean. If you were to apply that label to him, I get it. Um, mm-hmm. But then there's something like Tinker Taylor, which is that great cold war setting and where they have to kind of work within the system to, mm-hmm. you know, um, to, to figure out their case or whatever you want to call it. And then, you know, find the solution possibly outside the system and incorporated mm-hmm. it. You know, it's like there's great politicking in those. Um, but think by about Tinker large, Taylor, well, the thing about Tinker Taylor that, and we can get to this later too, but that is, you still have the character of Smiley who Gary Oldman plays. The whole movie starts with him. Spoilers. He walks out with John Hurt's character who John Hurt's plays the sort of the head of MI5 or the head of, they call it the circus, which is their slang for their version of the CIA. Um, those two are walking out. He takes, he takes Smiley with them and Smiley has to, figure all this out from outside the system from outside the circus and so it's even though it's a quieter movie like he's still there's still that sort of 
man against the system, man against the, you know, his former, his former, I don't want to call it security blanket, but just his former world he's now against and either trying to take down or trying to fix it from some other angle. That seems to be just a trope that, that keeps, and I love it. I don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think it's a bad trope. It's just one that kind of keeps re- re- repeating itself in different ways, subtle well, or no. And I think, um, man, that, oh my God, we could do another whole podcast comparing superhero movies to spy movies. But I, part of me, my instinct says that superhero movies are so dominated by the big two, Marvel mm-hmm. and DC, that mm-hmm. we're not, there's, there's not as broad a, a palette that's been established, you know, at least like in, in spy movies, there's such a huge long history of novels and stuff. You can correct me anytime if you think this is off base, but there's yeah. a, as you're saying that about Tinker Taylor, Good I'm job. thinking like that really is, um, as far as I know, that's sort of the uh, John Le Carre or Le Care. I don't know how mm-hmm. people are saying that name these days. My dad always said Le Care, but that author who wrote Tinker Taylor and wrote spy who came in from the cold and, um, he wrote the Taylor of Panama, which was one that I read. I think that's kind of like his, you know, his milieu is like the guy that ha- that kind of gets abandons the system or something. Yeah, kinda, yeah, you know, gets left on his own. Well, um, and that all of that predated the modern spy movie infrastructure, exactly. as it were. So it's it's you know that's a great way to kind of start this because in my mind. You know, in terms of the modern spy cinematic universe, if you will, that's that sort of has existed. That you you pick pick a movie, and you can usually trace the roots either visually or character wise, or or just uh, you know beat you know story beat wise back to Mission Impossible circa 1996. But when you think about Mission Impossible, the original movie. Um, you know, obviously it had the series, the TV series to sort of jump off from, but it also had, I, I, I'm pretty, they must've gone back to the Tinker Taylor book, to those original, those original you know, novels and pulled a lot from there to inform their decision-making. So it's almost like those two, it, it, you know, the, the novels kind of are the, the, you know, the, the first cell, the first, you know, protoplasm, if you will, of the, of the universe and the mission impossible kind of packaged it in a way that every movie since has kind of borrowed something from. And, and that just me, might be my own arrogance about loving this freaking franchise so much, but it just <laughs> seems like go back, go back to 1996. Actually, let's, let's go on further. Let's go back to 1995 prior to, you know, in 1995, the spy movie that came out that everybody was talking about was not mission impossible. It was James Bond. Goldeneye. Goldeneye. Yeah. yeah. And, and that movie you know, it was still I, I enjoyed it, but it it there was definitely a lot that it had sort of borrowed from and kind of re- re- refreshed and recycled. So there wasn't that sort of stark difference in tone and setting. It took a director like Brian De Palma, who directed The Untouchables, to bring that aesthetic to a Tom Cruise vehicle. And say what you will about Tom Cruise, I, I, you know, you you listening at home, you might be like, Tom, Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise, ew. Forget all that for a moment. Just forget the fact that he's living in some fairy world and just focus on the fact that he may, he has been involved with as a producer and an actor these movies over the course of the last you know 20 years now. Um, but he brought in Brian De Palma to put a very distinctive visual stamp on Mission Impossible 96. And from the very beginning, like from the very beginning of that film, the way it opens up, the way it sort of takes you through that world, there are a lot of really good, quiet, character-centric moments Um coupled with the really good action sequences that are in that are meaningful action it's not just like crazy set piece crazy set piece it definitely has those i mean that mission impossible movie invented the whole parallel you know you know uh, repelling from the ceiling 
you know thing that we know of as a Mission Impossible movie thing, but also as others other movies have been ripping up ripping that off for you know twenty years too. So it invented all this kind of stuff, but it packaged it in a way that the balance was for me exactly right. You, you know, there was never a moment in that movie that felt like it was just added to to be a spectacle moment or added, you know, at the expense of the story. Even Tom Cruise, you know, jumping from a moving speeding train in a tunnel to a helicopter at the end. That's <laughs> as, as ridiculous as that is to say. You watch it in the context, you're like, well, of course. That's you he, he had that was the only thing that makes sense in that moment. So like it just everything about it just kind of felt really cohesive. It's got you had the really good actors doing their thing. Um, yeah, obviously had Tom Cruise, but just it, it had just a really good mix of everything. And I felt in my mind that set the stage for what the last 20 years have given us. Everything from the Born Identity movies to um even to how they shaped and made you know the shape and the look of the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy movie. I feel and I'm not saying they just they 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 owe that to Brian De Palma, but I don't think that movie would have necessarily looked or worked quite the same had we not had all these other things after Mission Impossible that sort of have you know, painted this broad spectrum of what a spy movie can can be and should be allowed to be. You know, well, I think of, you, you okay. touched on something right there, which is that, that like, it was... I, I think you're right in that it, it, uh, it sort of turned the spy genre around and sort of faced it forward. But one of the great things it did um, was... Uh, because when I knew we were, we were uh, going to be talking about this... I uh, watched, started watching Mission Impossible One um, over a sandwich, so I only got about twenty minutes. Through it or <laughs> Once the sandwich that, is over, the movie's done. I don't care where it I is. Know they should make all movies sandwich <laughs> length. Um, but it was that great. Uh, you know, there's like there's a, um, there's a real quick action piece that opens it, mm-hmm. and then there's a longer sequence where they go to the embassy or whatever. And and it, in that, I mean, there's probably like twenty tropes of spy movies <laughs> yep, yep. that I, you know, we have either seen repeated out, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the man uh, sitting on top of the elevator, even, yep, um, yep. you know, tying into the computer system, but also that go backwards and, and tied into the whole history of spy movies. I mean, the fingerprint, the fake fingerprint on the elevator button is mm-hmm. such a clear nod to uh I believe it's uh, diamonds are forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Sean Connery has a has a rubber fingerprint that Q has given him um, that fools uh, Jill St. John, whatever her character's name. Oh, is. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's like, you know, it ties back and it and it points forward because and you know because those cliches have been so or not cliches. I guess the, maybe they are, but you know those tropes. They're cliches know, the now. Yeah, yeah. The man yeah. on the elevator. The the. Um, the glasses that have a camera in them, all those kind of things are have been u- have been used so much since then. It, mm-hmm. Like when you rewatch it today, it sort of fits perfectly in that history. Yep. Um, yep. Which is weird because to think that Goldeneye was a year earlier and it felt so corny. Isn't that amazing? Yep. Isn't it amazing to think that Goldeneye was only a year before that? Yeah. Um, I mean, and and I think DePaul, like you're you're absolutely right in giving De Palma that credit for that. You know, for for turning that around. Well, and it's and it's like and, and and again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that everything in that movie is original. You're completely right. There's a lot of history that it pulled from, um, and was self ref you know self referential in that way. Obviously, there's the TV series that had to give a couple nods to yeah. as well. It did all that really well, but it almost acts as like the the fulcrum or the the hinge, if you will, that took the best of what came before, packaged it in a beautiful 
contemporary way and set the stage for the, the 20 years that have happened since. Like, yeah. it, it just it was that beautiful moment that everything kind of passed through that movie. And you watch it again today. I feel, and a lot of people will argue with me on this just because they, they see old laptops or old, you know, old phones, but take, you know, ignore the technology part of it and just the way that movie is shot and the pacing, I still feel it holds up really well today. Um, Man, those laptop lot- shots, I'm serious, sometimes look like you're watching CSI. Yeah, from yeah, like just a few years ago. Like they're still doing that. Like, well, we're gonna enhance it and analyze it. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's there's a little of that too, but it's just I don't know. So so when you look at kind of the spy movie genre in, in general, it I feel '96 was kind of a, a benchmark year in terms of setting the stage for what we've got, which is why for me it was all the more disappointing and frustrating <laughs> and just all out just depressing that. Um, Mission Impossible 2, which came four, I think four years, I think it was, yeah, it was 2000. Four years later, Mission Impossible 2 was, I, I, even saying the words Mission Impossible 2 make me cringe because I hated it so much. Everything I loved about the first one was completely flipped on its head and was not present in the second one. And it bothered me that they, that they didn't understand the mechanics of what made that first one so good. And they just kind of threw all that out. Everything from, I mean, when they announced Anthony Hopkins was going to be in the second one, I remember going, oh my God, this is, this is going to be like the first one on steroids. And Anthony Hopkins appears all of two and a half minutes in this entire movie. So like just the throwaway moment after throwaway moment after throwaway moment, um, you know, the story was incomprehensible and it just, it relied almost exclusively on these giant set pieces. Like we're going to have Tom Cruise hanging by his, you know, hanging by a finger on the, on a cliff side. We're going to have Tom Cruise, like, you know, m- you know, motorcycle gunfighting and like just it, all of these things that just seem ridiculous that literally didn't serve. I mean, I, in my mind, didn't serve the story at all. Um, Which is, and so it's, it's so weird because so when we talked about this, like months ago about doing this, um, I was always like, man, I don't think I ever saw Mission Impossible 2, certainly not Mission Impossible 3, but um, going back to it, you know, knowing we were going to record this podcast, um, I surprised myself to learn that Mission Impossible 2 was directed by John Woo, who mm-hmm. in like 95, I would have cited as one of my favorite directors ever for yeah. Killer and Hard Boiled. Yep. Yep. When I worked at Blockbuster Video, people came in, they're like, I want a crazy action movie. that was all I recommended was like John Woo Mm -hmm. just get John Woo and so I I sort of have a a memory that is possibly not true of being excited to see Mission Impossible 2 because I knew he was doing it yeah yeah but you know and you know the other thing that is so weird is that in that time between Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 2 there were three more James Bond movies oh that's all in the vein of Goldeneye. I mean, not like I remembered all this. I had to look this up knowing we were talking about it. But, um, you know, those Brosnan movies never, you know, they they didn't really change in tone. No, no. And, and so they certainly didn't, like, really become Mission Impossible movies. You know, it was sort of like they had defined their style and that's what they were. Yeah. And so I, I think when Mission Impossible 2 came out, it was like, here's another opportunity for the Mission Impossible franchise to redefine itself as kind of the modern spy yeah, movie yeah you know they got john woo on board but maybe they just sort of missed the envelope like the the you know maybe they just gone too long without a sequel that nobody really cared four years is a long long time and think about this when mission impossible one came out we still hadn't i think we had just had the summer before we'd had batman forever the val kilmer one um and then we hadn't had batman and robin yet so batman and robin hadn't existed and the matrix hadn't come out 
So yeah. those two things happen in the time between Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 2. So that just right there, that, that, that's a big kind of like, there's something unsettling about that and just knowing that. <laughs> also though, Tom Cruise was very specific in saying as a producer, you know, he's like, we're going we're gonna to bring in a different director every time out and we're going to make these feel like they're completely separate. The, you know, the only thing that will be the same is the name, me, and Ving Rhames. Like everything else will be a different, pardon me, a different feeling, a different tone, which you could argue is, you know, I, is an interesting idea. And that only ever got, I feel that only ever started really clicking in these last three. So to me, it's it's pretty telling that you had four years between the first one and the second one. You had six years between yeah. the second one and the third one. Six years had passed. So 10 years after the first one, they come back and they the, the most – the most important thing that franchise ever did was bring in J.J. Abrams to direct and produce. And since the third one, J.J. has been involved with producing the Bad Robot has been producing the last three. Hmm. That has kept a sort of as as different as the last three are. There is definitely a feeling that they're part of a a, a similar sort of universe. Like you can watch the last three movies and love them or hate them. There's a there's some there's a thread through them that feels like there's a hand guiding this. Where I, you definitely didn't get that from one to two, and you obviously didn't get that, fortunately, from two to three, because we just we're just gonna pretend two. It's almost like they're saying we're gonna pretend two never really existed. Um, <laughs> and because and what's really cool about the the last three is there's there's always a moment in each of these last three movies where they will reference the first one in an interesting, meaningful way. It might be a cameo from a character from the first one, or a, you know, a repeat or a, sort of an homage to a moment in the first one that's very clear and very deliberate, which makes me happy because it just makes them go, you can tell they love that first one. They love the franchise and they love that first one, but you don't ever see, you know, they don't really reference anything that happens in the second one as, as canon. They don't really reference it, you know, it, but they do reference the first one quite a bit. Um, and I, you know, I love. I I went to the third one really trepidatious. I went to the third one going, I got my heart broken, and this is me coming back just you know one more time, and you know I'm, I'm probably going to say goodbye, but and and end up having like the best time in my life, you know, and it rekindled my love of the franchise again. Um, and you got Philip Seymour Hoffman doing what he's doing, you know. The third one is what the second one should have been, in my opinion. Like if you're going to cast, you know. Um, um, you know, big actors in the second one and use them correctly. Like you did Philip Seymour Hoffman. The, my favorite one though, I think as much as I love the first one, Ro, um, ghost protocol blew me away so much. I mean, the ghost protocol took the balance and the intentionality of the first one and took it to the, its next level. So it's definitely more action oriented. Um, but that's okay because it definitely leaves moments for the quieter moments. There's, 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 it, it, it's, it just feels really cohesive. There's a lot of really gorgeous international locations, um, you know, there's even corny, cheesy moments that, that give it levity that work really well. And when, when Tom Cruise is at the very end, you know, with the briefcase and he finally gets the briefcase back from the main bad guy. And he's like, you know, he, you know the bomb's about to go off and he presses it. And he goes, mission accomplished. And he presses it and it doesn't work. And then, you know, five minutes later you have Bing Rame sitting there going, did you actually say mission accomplished? Like, you know, just little, little moments like that. And the fact that, you know, they, Bing Rames only appears in the last five minutes and, you know, there's there's kind of like this there's a little subtle dialogue back and forth between him and Tom Cruise to make you as the audience go oh that you know they're sort of digging on the fact that Ving Rhames wasn't in this one um, you know so like little things like that worked really well Rogue Nation which came out this summer which kind of teed up this whole episode I liked too I didn't like it as much um, I felt it, it you didn't it, like it as much as Ghost Protocol 
Asgos protocol. I, I think if, if you take out the second one and just forget it didn't happen, yeah. and you just look at the the four that I that are there, I say this is I, and to me, and this is just personal preference. This, to me, it's the weakest of the four, only because it it mm. kind of relied a little too much on action sequences and be big set pieces. But then at the same time, you had Rebecca Ferguson, who is the female actress, and we can get to her in a, in a, in a little bit talking about just you know female led spy movies, but she killed it. You know, she was basically an unknown and they brought her in for this character and just, she, she, it was basically the Rebecca Ferguson movie featuring Tom Cruise. Um, much like Mad Max Fury Road with, you know, Shirley Theron and Tom Hardy. So that was really inspiring and encouraging. I feel though, like for me, and, and, and it's nice knowing too that Tom Cruise is really liking this franchise. Obviously it's one of the few that's still working for him given all his you know other problems, but you know, they're, they're, they're starting on the next one right now. So we might get a mission impossible movie every two years now, which might lead to burnout. It might lead to, you know, a really crazy wild um, difference in quality. The thing that I want from this franchise, and this is kind of a, you know, to kind of start to wrap up this part of it the thing I want from this franchise that we'll probably never get, but it, it will delight me to no end. If, the, like the next one or whenever Tom Cruise is ready to be done, he doesn't signal that he doesn't say, you know, out loud, Hey, this is my last one, but they do set it up in a way that echoes the Jim Phelps from the first movie. Jim Phelps was the main character in the TV series. He, um, you know, obviously John Voight played him in the 96 movie because the original actor didn't want to be a bad guy. You know, after having played that on the TV series, I thought it was a brilliant choice. I want to see that same thing happen with Tom Cruise. I want to see him, get so fed up with the, the IMF that he goes rogue or goes bad or has a, as a, a, a crisis of, of, of um, consciousness or a, a moral crisis that he starts doing bad things and has to be shut down. And maybe at the end he redeems himself or, or sacrifices himself. But I want to see that moment. Um, Cause the kind of the myth of Ethan hunt has been kind of blown out or blown up in the last couple movies to the point where in rogue nation, there's a scene early on where he goes into a kind of a, a meetup, uh, you know, one of those, the uh, uh, IMF sort of you know, sanctioned meetup places, this, this record store. And he goes up to the, the record store clerk and she's, you know, he gives her the secret code and yeah. she looks at him like, oh, it's you. Like I, I've, I've heard legends of you, Ethan Hunt. Like, you know, he's been everything from a rock star agent to an instructor at one point in you know, the third one. Like, so that that's cool, but I feel like he needs to be he needs to go through another. It can't just be the the unstoppable Ethan Hunt the entire time. And there was parts of Rogue Nation that were, and there was even a, there was even a monologue kind of towards the end where, um, um, oh god, uh, one of the characters starts you know kind of the character who's supposed to be the head of the IMF or you know at least investigating the IMF gives this monologue about how awesome Ethan Hunt is. You know how he'll never stop and he'll always be there. And then you know he appears and he actually goes hunt. Like it's you know it's just there's this whole there's this mythology built around that character that I, I I'm I, I'm fine with, but it kind of needs to that needs to be messed with. And so I would really look forward to another movie kind of doing that, almost the same way that um you know the 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 last the Skyfall and just the 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 Daniel Craig run of Bond films I feel has kind of done that to some extent with the James Bond character, you know, it's put him at odds with um, MI5. It's put him at odds with the world. And, and that could, you know, I'll let you go on more about that, but I want to <laughs> see that now happen with Ethan Hunt. I want to see that. And I think that will, and, you know, and continue to use different directors. That's fine. Um, that's just where I want to see it go. Well, that that's totally interesting to me because I, and this is probably another, we should have another whole podcast where we just talk about following characters. Yeah. But, um, uh, 
just because I, I don't, I don't care for Ethan Hunt at all. Ah, <laughs> which is weird because, uh, and it's funny too because now we've done at least two podcasts in a row where you've sort of like uh, offered apologies for liking Tom Cruise or something, and I think Tom Cruise is great, man. <laughs> I think he's fine, but I get shit all the time from people. And and he's actually there's another podcast called Q and A, and yeah. I really encourage anybody to go find that. There's the it's one of the most recent episodes. He and the director um, Macquarie um, do just a whole hour on Mission Impossible. And y- you get a real good sense of how that movie came together and how a lot of it was sort of made up on the spot and just magically sort of worked. Um, it's Q and A with Jeff Goldsmith. Uh, check it out. But you get you come away with that podcast with a huge appreciation for Tom Cruise. Like here's a hardworking guy who like yeah. really loves doing this and loves this franchise so much. Um, but at the same time too, and, I, and I'll, I'll I'll I appreciate that, but I'll still get people coming up to me either in comment sections or in person going Tom Cruise. Oh, and just you know with all the other stuff haunting him. Um, so I yeah. feel like I always have to pref. I, I I hate that I have to disclaimer that every time I bring it up. Yeah, it's it's true. <laughs> so, but you know, anyway, but back to the original. My uh, original diversion was: I, I think it's interesting how that that character persists for you. Obviously, he persists for a lot of people. Like that's you know that's a character people like watching. Um, he just, I think that was probably why I kind of didn't care about the other Mission Impossible movies was because I didn't, um, which is very different from the way I cared about born movies you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but it but it also may explain why i sort of stopped caring about james bond movies uh, although i'm really gonna lay the blame for that on brosnan and well let's you know, get people, into the that, people that, responsible for that <laughs> yeah i'm so, really curious to know because you you are the resident james bond expert basically i mean like, yeah, I, I, would, I know just yeah. enough to be dangerous but you've read the books you've you've been there you've yeah, I, I would hesitate to claim that title, but um, but it, it but between the two of us, that, I mean, that, or especially between those these two franchises, I'm definitely like steeped in the in the Bond lore, you know, not the the Mission Impossible lore. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know what you were talking about, uh, Brian De Palma, and there's this crazy fact that um, I recently learned when I was watching Casino Royale again, and I was thinking to myself, like, God, this, you know this is such a change in style when you watch Casino Royale as like the introduction of Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked up the director thinking he must have been on one of those later born movies or something, you know, it must like, there's some connection he's got to that more visceral style. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it turns out he was the director of GoldenEye. That's amazing. <laughs> so, so- <laughs> the direct so the, let's just let's just let's just make that clear. The director of Casino Royale, the first of the Craig movies, directed Goldeneye, the first of the Brosnan movies. Yes, and, and Green Lantern. <laughs> 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 but anyway, well, <laughs> you know whatever. that almost that <laughs> if that yeah. that's that sounds like. That's that's a too good to be true kind of thing, but it is true. He did, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's like there there couldn't it's so be. Crazy. There yeah. couldn't be two different movies. I mean, when we talk about style and consistency, as different as Mission Impossible 1 was to 2, to me, GoldenEye and Casino Royale couldn't be further apart at stylistically speaking. Um, oh, yeah. And it's, I, you know, I mean, um, who knows how much of that was uh, directed by the the Broccoli Company, I guess, who owned <laughs> the rights or whatever. And, you know, maybe there was a, a legacy they were trying to carry on or whatever. Um, but I... 
I thought I would I would drop on you, and maybe I may have actually said this in a previous podcast, but um, I have always seen James Bond as having two schools of actors: Connery and Moore. And I think every other actor and every story sort of falls into one of these genres, and um, or one of those schools, I guess. So. George Lazenby, who took over for Connery, was a Connery actor. He was serious in the role. Mm-hmm. They were much they were much truer to the books. You know, it was a serious spy. Um, there were rules. There was a bureaucracy. Like he was definitely, you know, a rule breaker. But he was still, uh, it, you know, in in the uh, he was still accepted by yeah. the, you know, by the bureaucracy. And then Moore was like he was a little more flamboyant. The movies were classic 80 movies 80s movies that were really you know borderline silly i mm. mean christopher walken's role <laughs> uh, christopher walken know, is a villain it, that's all you need to say i mean what, what was his name like zorn or zorin or something i remember he had like a, a blimp maybe yeah. it was ridiculous. <laughs> and uh you know they had a they, they, they got a little you know they got a little far away from the book this watch i carried it yeah. my ass <laughs> mr bond <laughs> I oh, yeah, it's I actually forgot until this week that he was in it, and I I was googling Christopher Walken for other reasons, as you do, and came across that picture of him with the, like the blonde slicked back hair, and was like, he's oh my young God, in that movie, right. isn't he? Like it kind of oh, yeah. kind of throws you off. You're like, what is this mannequin that looks like Christopher? Oh God, that's Christopher Walken. Yeah, he looks ah. like a robot, Christopher Walken. Yeah, yeah. So used to seeing the older version. It's crazy. <laughs> so then then the, the strange thing happened, which I remember as a kid, which was Pierce Brosnan was widely heralded or, or uh, appraised or whatever you want to say. He was widely expected to be the next Bond, mm-hmm. but he had contractual obligations to this dumb TV show called Remington Steel. Oh, that's right. gave the role to Timothy Dalton. So wait, wait, wait. So I did not know this. So He Brosnan was supposed to be Bond in like 86. Wow. Yeah. That was always going to, that was always meant to be. It just happened a little late. I had no exactly. idea. Exactly. So he, um, wow. So he missed his opportunity. So there was this great, you know, other story of like, um, you know, how he would come back to the franchise. But Dalton, and I didn't, I didn't like the Dalton movies, and I didn't see him. Although the bits, the bits I've seen of them, I recognize Dalton as a Connery actor. Like mm-hmm. they were serious again, you know. Yeah. Um, and they they weren't silly. Yeah. And uh, and I think it's also worth pointing out there was this weird rights dispute in the in the eighties where. Um, uh, Connery came back to the Bond role twice. Like he uh, was James Bond for like three or four movies. George Lazenby did on Her Majesty's Secret Service, I believe. Um, you know the famous one where Bond gets married, um, and then Connery came back and did Diamonds Are Forever. Then he lost the role to, or he didn't lose it. He just gave it up, I guess. And Moore took over. But then uh, Connery came back and did uh, Never Say Never Again during the Moore years, mm-hmm. which was some weird, like you know. Uh, on the um, Wikipedia page for James Bond, you don't even see Never Say Never Again. Really? Um, because it's just not, it's not canon. Gotcha. But it was the one with, um, oh like great. The Peter Cushing Doctor Who episode, the Doctor Who movies that nobody, people acknowledge, but they're like, that's because they were, they were standalone <laughs> movies that had nothing to do with the show and it was weird. And I, I, I assume so. 
but it was yeah it was uh it was just like a there was the broccoli company and and albert broccoli the broccoli company so just, just to know that that james bond was at one time produced by the broccoli company always produced by the broccoli company. <laughs> always produced by the broccoli like is it spelled like the food or is it spelled like in a more cool eurocentric way that like b-r-o-c-h-e-l-y or I don't actually know how you spell the food now that I'm thinking about it, but I think, I think it is. There's no H in it. Okay. Um, okay. It's uh, Albert Broccoli, I guess, was the yeah, okay. main guy. And I'm scrolling hard, but I it can't. It sounds find like it. a bad Sesame Street joke almost. Like, like James Bond is brought to you by the letter C and the Broccoli Company. It's just like, what? yeah. It was That's a so great. Bizarre. It was a great vertical integration for the <laughs> for the vegetable industry in the '60s. Broccoli was hot back in the '60s. Now, oh man, so every spy was eating it. Um, you know, but Popeye's got that spinach. <laughs> what are we gonna do, guys? Um, synergy. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah. So uh, it's so we, we there was this. You know, um, Dalton comes in. He's a Connery actor, and then Brosnan comes in, uh, sort of you know assuming the mantle that everyone thought he should have had two or three years earlier mm -hmm. and it's like i just remember there was this tremendous hype like we're doing it right we know the dalton movie screwed it up we're getting everybody back i this was uh, one of the rumors that that was floated at that time uh was that sharon stone might actually take over the role as james bond oh seriously anybody I, i'm pretty sure that's what i remember from 1990 for See, that's or something they would be calling for now like that seems much more like oh no put it a woman was, in the role they were know? throwing all sorts of crazy stuff out there like how to re revitalize this franchise wow you know they pick remington steel to do it and they stick him in a roger moore movie yeah and they stick him in three more roger moore movies it was like i i wanted casino royale in 95 and i had to wait 11 years to get it you wow. know so then that, that brings us to Daniel Craig, who is absolutely a Connery actor. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I once made the argument that Brosnan was a Connery actor trapped in Roger Moore films, but whatever. <laughs> the films yeah. are still corny. And they, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so interesting that you brought up Mission Impossible and that <clears throat> I, you know, I agree. It like sort of flipped the, the genre and faced it forward mm -hmm. because those Brosnan movies were just like, they were looking back at, at Con, you know, he's got these silly gadgets and he's like, I mean, the, you know, these crazy ridiculous stakes of, I mean, it was just, they were just nuts. You know, yep, yep. Denise Richards was like a nuclear physicist. It was <laughs> fucking unbelievable. <laughs> Wasn't that, was that the one where they're rolling through the oil, like the, the water slide oil thing? That's like, um, they're like basically taking a water slide ride through the oil tube thing or something possibly she there was they were definitely on a submarine that started filling up and uh denise or christmas jones as her uh <laughs> character was called <laughs> well there's definitely like a very gratuitous moment of like let's just cover this this lady in in water <laughs> um it was it was just stupid, you know? Well, and then it's funny it, that, like, when you and I talked about this months ago, you had to remind me that Judy Dench was in those. I was like, yeah! Oh God. Like, I totally... she, was the only, she was the only, like, symbol of credibility in the entire damn thing, which is probably why they're like, Judy, we, we were very sorry this happened to you. Here, let's, yeah, we're going to give you proper movies to be in with proper storylines. I tell you this, though. The reason I was late to James Bond was because... I had two choices given to me. I had GoldenEye, which, to be honest, I sort of enjoyed GoldenEye. It wasn't my, necessarily my cup of tea, but it was fine. But then everything that came after GoldenEye, 
just got worse and worse and worse. Meanwhile, Mission Impossible comes out and just blows me away. So I'm like, well, that's, I, I prefer this style. So I never really latched onto James Bond until Casino Royale came out. And I was really trepidatious about that. And I actually had a, I had a friend that almost hold my hand and walk me to the theater and go, no, no, this will be okay. Just, just wait, wait, enjoy it. And I, had, I left there going, okay, I think I can actually swing with this now. I actually, I really dig this. But here's my question for you. Is it true that Casino Royale and other movies since you know other movies of the Craig franchise are more true to the books or are more based on the books? So the one of the I mean I, on one hand it's this is a totally different discussion than like a current superhero movie or Game of Thrones or something because it's like who the hell cares if they're based on these novels? Oh sure, like yeah, yeah. fifty or sixty years old at this point, but there is four the weirdos who read James Bond novels when they were 12 years old, like me um, in the middle of Casino Royale, there is the entire novel Casino Royale, which wow. is, was so fantastic. And I remember watching that in the theater and being like, Holy shit, they've done it. They've put like, it is like, I mean, aside from the really distracting fact that they play Texas Hold'em <laughs> <laughs> and not, um, uh, Baccarat or whatever, whatever that crazy French uh, game is that they play in the book. Um, that uh, it, it was basic. Wait, did I say that right? Yeah, Baccarat. Um, that they, uh, the that whole story. He gambles. Uh, um, Le Chief or whatever is his opponent. The the eye bleeding thing. I think all of that is from the novel. The torture. Wow. That specific torture of like having James Bond sit on a bamboo. Uh, chair where they've cut the um, the you know the seat out of it so mm. that they can um, whip his balls. Mm -hmm. That is straight out of the book. Damn, um, that was one of the most compelling things about the. That was the yeah. moment in this franchise where I'm like, holy shit, this and is it's like one of James those Bond now. Where you're like, some dude wrote this in the 50s, you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> and incredible. and it still holds up because that shit is scary. And like you know what the stakes are, they're really really personal. I don't know why movies have to turn it into like, you know, uh, what is it? I, I can't remember the Brosnan die another day that I just saw on TV or, or tomorrow never <laughs> loses or whatever the stupid movie was where he um, there's like a North Korean guy who's gotten plastic surgery to oh yeah, <laughs> to look yeah. like this redheaded English guy <laughs> and he's invented this like heat laser that's gonna burn up the demilitarized zone. It's like. There's outrageous. a problem. There was a problem for me. For me, those movies hit their nadir and, and ridiculousness when they were basically indistinguishable from Austin Powers, which was you know in its prime oh my at God. the time. Like, no and you kidding. look at, and you're just like, is there really a difference? Which, by the way, not to tangent. I don't want to tangent too much, but like, that's why I freaking loved Kingsman so much because if you and you may not, I don't, I don't know if Kingsman is qualified as a spy movie, but it was such an obvious sort of send off of. A lot of those, you know, those kinds of tropes, um, and not, but in a in a violent, real way. So it took a lot of that ridiculous stuff. You know, Samuel Jackson has a layer, for God's sake. They even sit down and talk about that. They, there's a meta commentary and all that stuff inside the movie. But then, you know, people are getting like their heads are exploding. All these kind of crazy, all this other stuff's going on. It's like it's bonkers all across the board. But I love it because it's like they just decided they're like we're not going to be precious about this 
at all. Yeah. We're going to take kind of our favorite stuff of the most ridiculous Roger Mork style movies and just make yeah. one big thing out of it, you know? Well, and it, which comes from the team that gave us kick-ass, you know? Oh, of course. And yep. so it's definitely that subverting the genre that they're still, that they, you know, they, they respect the genre and they, they want to be in it, but they're, you know, they're definitely subverting it and stuff. So I never saw Kingsman, but I was in the Comic-Con panel for it in Hall H, whatever year that was, mm -hmm. and was super excited about it. And then, you know, six months later, whenever it came out, I was like, eh, I'll, catch that. I'll catch that later. It's, um, it's but totally yeah, I mean, I just remember those previews and hearing Mark Miller talk about it and stuff and, and being really impressed. Or is it, did Edgar Wright? Uh, no, it was uh, Matthew Vaughn. Matthew Vaughn, Matthew Vaughn, right, right, right. I don't know why I got that confused with him, but it could have been. I mean, honestly, it's, it's got a lot of tonal stuff that Edgar Wright is is known for. So I, I yeah. would have been confused if I had known that too. Let's and go so back. Why to, do you not put it in the spy genre? I, I mean, you probably can. I mean, there's spy stuff going on. It just feels like it's not. It feels like that's the sandbox they're playing in, but that's not the story they're telling. Like the story okay. they're telling is this kid. Gotcha. Um, having to deal with his life and you know you've got um you've got uh, a colin first character sort of you know filling you know filling that void and and making you know good on, and it's like they're you it's, it's like they went into a spy toy store and got all that cool stuff but that story doesn't necessarily have to be i mean and i'll probably get yelled at later on by people who are like no nah, absolutely it's of course it's a spy movie i yeah. part of it is too that it's so bonkers that you kind of like that overwhelms any other sort of genre that it could be because it's just you, you never know what's going to freaking happen like halfway through i don't want to spoil too much but like halfway through there's like a, a an intense amazingly choreographed but horrifically violent fight scene in a church <laughs> between colin firth and normal church going folk and you're just like what the hell is happening like and those kinds of moments just going to keep popping up and you got samuel jackson with a lisp and like just there's yeah. all this craziness so i don't know I, I think, tonally speaking, I'm used to, you know, when I think spy movie, I mean, and if that is considered one, it's on the absolute most ridiculous, it's a, it's a spy movie as much as Austin Powers is. You know, that's, you know, if you want to count Austin Powers as a spy movie, fine, then Kingsman counts too. I just, and kind of tying this back briefly to Bond again real quick, having, you know, the, you know, last year seen Skyfall, and what that, you know, and, and what that can be, and what you know, that taking spy movies to a whole different, whole different world. I mean, Skyfall is if you like Casino Royale, and you wanted to see all of that same stuff, like amplified, you know, amplified in terms of the action and the pacing and the the care to detail and the and and all the while resetting the Bond universe to what you are normally aware of with the you know the the, the regular characters and all that stuff. Like Skyfall does all of that and gives Judy Dench this amazing character arc. Like if Skyfall was everything plus we're sorry, Judy Dench, that you had to be in these Pierce Brosnan movies. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna send you off in the classiest, most amazing way possible, all the while making the best Bond movie we've ever made. Here you go. Like I, and and remind me, have you not seen Skyfall yet? Are you? Still I have there? still not. So, which is why oh. I want to shrug off the mantle of the James Bond <laughs> Uber well, fan. Um, that's I, yeah. That you need to add that to your list. I mean, I think it's well, still. It's been on my list. It is not available for rent on any of our modern present day systems. It's not on Netflix still. I thought it was. Nope. No Netflix. No Amazon Prime. No Hulu. No HBO. Whoa! I mean, so just gotten taken off then. That's crazy. It's bullshit, man. That that oh, a tiny rant here that is so outrageous that any 
whoever owns the rights to any movie like that would not just make it available for rent on one platform or another. I don't care. Yeah. One. Well, it's weird that they wouldn't that they would deny it this close to the release of Spectre. It's almost like well, and it's some dumb marketing move, I'm sure, where it's like let's pull it off for a while, let's put it back on a month before the movie or something. But it's I, frustrating as hell when it's like, I mean. Come on, I mean, let's uh, you it's know, we can we can get any movie we want to see. We there's ways to get it. Oh yeah, Might it, as well just idiot, make it it's idiotic because it's looking to pay three bucks to rent this for weeks now. Yeah, well, you waited too long. Apparently, they're like, nope, nope. Now no one can watch it. Todd didn't yeah. get in. <laughs> they were watching you specifically. Like, well, nope. It bugs me though because think about how many people who hadn't seen it yet but want to see Spectre, and they're like, oh, we gotta catch, yeah. we gotta get caught up before we go in. Because what Skyfall does. Uh, there's many things it does really well for me skyfall tie it back to again 96 mission impossible all of that amazing stuff that made that that made 96 mission impossible work so well is carried through into skyfall you see it all present you see the quiet character moments you see the great purposeful intentional action you see the very subtle introduction of characters that you are aware of from the series but they're not bombastic however you have javier bardem playing a sort of you know, more bombastic of the Craig, Daniel Craig era villains, Javier Bardem's character is probably the most dramatic, but he still has a grounded sort of sense about him. And there's, and he's only introduced halfway through the damn movie. So it's almost <laughs> like the movie doesn't, it's almost, it's one movie and then he shows up and then it's another movie and it still all fits together in the end. But it leaves you at the end of it, it leaves you with the classic bond universe restored. You have, yeah. you have um, uh, Ray Fiennes as M you know, you have the 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 secret layer, you know, kind of their their underground bunker thing back again. You've got Q, who who's back, you know, and he's a younger kid. It's it's uh, Ben Winshaw um, playing Q. So it's like all that's in. You have Money Penny back, like all that stuff is back. So if you went into Casino Royale going, this isn't James Bond. Like if you're used to all those trappings, whether it be from Sean Connery or Pierce Brosnan or anywhere in between, and you're, you you missed all that. That's all back now, but it's re, it was reintroduced. They earned it. That's the best part. All that stuff, they earned every step of the way. So when they leave you at the end of Skyfall, you're like, holy shit, all this makes complete sense. It wasn't just ham-fisted in. It was, you know, it's, it's all very much earned as character moments, as story moments. I loved it. And so now I am, I am on board for the James Bond movie <laughs> moving forward. Which, it's like they found a way to hook me in. And which is so I, interesting because to me that um, – what was so genius about Casino Royale was that they left all that stuff out. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, we're going to make a bare bones James Bond movie. So, so we're not going to make those mistakes of the Brosnan movies. Yep. Um, and, and to me, that was, that was a great hook for yeah. Casino Royale was, was not having, uh, you know, gadgets, not having Q, not having, uh, you know, money penny, or I, I can't even remember if there was a, you know, if if M had a secretary or anything like that, and I think Ava Green casino, kind but, of facilitated that role a little bit. She was like the money true. counter for M. You know. Well, wait, she was Vesper though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's but, a, see, yeah. Casino Royale. Casino Royale is to the last Brosnan movie as Batman Begins is to Batman and Robin. Right. It right. Tonally, it shift. It it did a complete tonal shift. It stripped it away of all its like you know excesses and just like we're just going to tell this story in this way and we're going to make it look gorgeous. 
and yeah. you're gonna we're gonna flip the switch on what you think this is. So I am I am stoked going into Spectre. Like and, and yeah. you throw Christoph Waltz in there, who you know, as yeah, much as Javier Bardem was like the most dramatic, exaggerated character in a very grounded way, Christoph Waltz kind of takes that one notch more. So I think I feel like what I've seen that Spectre trailers is they're like, okay, we've got the world reestablished, we've got you hooked in, we've got you. Nate, former naysayers hooked in. Now we're going to very slowly, very slowly move the knob on how sort of exaggerated we can be. We're not going to go too far. We're just going to, every movie, we're going to tick it just a little bit more and just a little bit more until we, we feel that we're, you know, and I think they're just going to keep doing that until they feel the, the pushback or the, the resistance and then they'll be in that comfortable sweet spot. Um, that's, that's just what it feels like. I mean, I'm sure they, they may not be that intentional about it, but what are your thoughts on the Spectre trailer? Because that's, that's the next big one coming up. I'm pretty excited. And only uh, today, on the day that we we're uh, recording this, did I watch the second Spectre trailer, which has come out. Um, and it's just awesome looking. You know, like I, I love, the, I love the, the look of the film. Um, mm-hmm. I, too, am totally excited about Christoph Waltz being in it. Uh, you know, I, I have no... There's, I have no worries or <laughs> fears about this movie at all. Um, and I, and I'm totally interested to see Skyfall and I definitely will before uh, Spectre comes out one way or another. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, because, because I, 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 although I'm not worried about it at all, I do bring that, that up about, you know, bringing in the rest of the universe, you know, mm-hmm. like what, you know, uh, there's something in the trailer about, you know, James Bond's car, and mm-hmm. you kind of, for a minute, I'm like, uh-oh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is so funny, because when I was a kid, Roger Moore's submarine car was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Oh, <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> so, but, um, I, I, you know, I guess maybe we just live in a world of, like, uh, such high-tech stuff that to, to see sort of silly movie versions of high-tech stuff is, you know, kind of gets us off point. Like, we want to see the real stuff that we already have working, you know? So I would be fine. I'm fine with a, with a subcar. I mean, especially when you have Ben Winshaw couldn't be a more just, just uh, like he's, he's like the librarian version of Q. So yeah. he's very, there's nothing exaggerated about him at all. He's not like, James, I've got a new invention for you. You know, he's just like, yeah. he's like, I mean, they first meet in Skyfall. They meet at an art gallery and he's just sitting there. He's like, hello, James, I have yeah. this. Well, they've definitely made him sort of, I, and from what I'm, I'm gauging from the Spectre trailer, he's more of like the geek. Yes. Not, but, I mean, you know, Desmond Llewellyn in the Connery movies was definitely like, you know, he was like a, a proper gentleman. You know, he was wasn't he, as goofy as he was, got in the Roger Moore movies. Cause he so is, he was Q, that was the actor who was Q the entire time up until the gentleman. He movie, was, right? yes, he was even, yeah, he was even in a Brosnan movie or two and they brought in a Cleese came in to take over it's all so. you need to say about the Brosnan movies towards the end john cleese was q for god's sake as much as i love that man like the fact that he was q is just like i know okay. um but no it's, it's like i i i feel like they have earned the right to pull in ridiculous moments like that because they have a ground they'll do it in a grounded meta kind of way that might be actually self-referential and funny um because they're just they got to have some levity in those movies because they're getting i mean skyfall is very serious and very dark um, so it had, you know, when they can find these moments, I I'm fine with that. As long as it, again, they're probably just taking, they're like, okay, we're going to just take the knob just a little bit more and just see that. Yeah. It, they'll really come down to it to me though. It will come down to Christoph Waltz. Is he, if he's, <laughs> I love that man too. He's an amazing actor, but this looks like the perfect opportunity for him to basically go, you know, to take, to take, go on full on Hans Landa again 
in a movie where that may not be appropriate. So, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. where he's like, hello, James, I'm petting my cat as I look at you I from no, my I have chair. I have seen you know. the cat in any of the trailers. Is there I know, one? thank God. You know, okay, okay. there is no cat yet, but I'm just like, if this, and they're like, well, he's not necessarily Blofeld. I'm like, he's wearing the freaking Blofeld costume. I That just shows you how invested I am because I had to go when people are like, he's Blofeld. I'm like, who's that? I had to actually go and look that up because I just didn't care about James Bond until now. So I'm just like, oh, that guy. And, you know, obviously, when I saw the picture of the former, the, you know, the former actor, I, I, it all clicked for me who that was. But I'm just like, oh, okay. And then that's the costume. And okay, oh, okay, I see, I see. This could be cool. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. Let's let's segue that though into a couple other franchises that aren't, you know, the big two are obviously Mission Impossible and Bond right now. But you know, it's kind of the you know second string, if you will. We've got the Born Identity movies, which have which, been kicking around for a while. I'm such a huge fan of the like as much as as mission impossible kind of brought you into it like the born movies which i probably didn't i, I probably haven't seen any of them in the theater because i kind of caught on like a year late or something and oh they, sure uh, um but i just you know it was sort of like i just sort of wrote them off like eh, you know uh, i i figured it was kind of a uh you know a, a, a what do i want to say a low budget version of mission impossible or something but they had such a great hook to them and i don't know maybe they you know i think they're kind of we're sneaking them into this spy genre because he's yeah um mm-hmm. using the covert uh skills that he uh you know acquired as a as a covert operative or spy or whatever but not really in the capacity of you know he's not spying for a government or you know the the they um they took that uh that theme that's sort of introduced in Mission Impossible, where it's the um, the the spy whose government has turned on him, who mm-hmm. you know now has to go spy on them and figure out where he is and whatever, and mm-hmm. you know what, or maybe not the entire government, but at least his little agency is you mm-hmm. know trying to knock him out. But I think they um, they just up the stakes a little bit for me because I guess in Mission Impossible, at least in that first one, I know it's like you know ten years prior, but it's they didn't you don't really know who this. You know, I am. Is it really the IMF? Is that really what it yeah, is? Yeah, it's the impossible, impossible mission force. Which in the first movie, they basically use it as a substitution for CIA. They never right. said. I mean, they they said CIA because at one point in the movie they have to break into um, yeah. Langley, and they're like, "We're going to break into the goddamn CIA." And so it's like, oh, so th- that is a separate organization. So you get the sense that the IMF is just more of a secret circle within that, and then yeah. it gets, it's a little bit more ludicrous as time goes on. But well, and as much as I don't care for Ethan Hunt, like I don't, I don't ever feel for him uh the born movies just did such a good job of like making me really feel for that character mm-hmm. and um and which also like mission impossible sort of you know respawned this <laughs> genre of i mean like how many you know shows or cartoons or comic books or whatever have we read now where there's like i mean look at american ultra where there's just an agent oh, sure. who's been taught these skills and then had his brain wiped or whatever his memory wiped and is sort of like learning them, you know, mm-hmm. and doesn't understand why he knows that, you know, karate or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, but the Bourne movies had such a good, like, uh, you know, I don't know, they were just, they had such a good personal impact. I, I thought Matt Damon was so awesome in them and they were so visceral in that action, which I'm sorry yeah. to use that word again, but just, it was like when somebody got punched in those movies, it was like somebody got punched. It wasn't a silly, yeah. holy effect you know, and where some guy goes flying across the room or something. I mean, it was like, man, that hurt. You know, <laughs> somebody mm-hmm. gets stabbed to death with like an ink pen in that first one, I think. And it's just, 
awful to watch. Yeah. I, uh, I, I really did like the first one. I liked it too, because they didn't focus so much on the love story between him and right. um, the female, I forget her name. Was uh, it Julia Stiles who played her? No, no, that was, she was the, she was like the, she was the uh, secretary or the assistant at the, uh, at the spy organization. I'm, uh, I'm talking about the chick he meets at the, like the, at the embassy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, like the Mina jo- Jojovich looking chick. Um, I, I uh, apologize. Potente, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she's that, she's uh, great. She was I'm in to... Run Lola Run, right? Yes, her. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she's fantastic too. But like, you know, the, the whole time I'm just like, oh god, when are they gonna when are they gonna kiss and all that? And so even at yeah. the end when they reunite, spoilers, um, they there's not that dopey scene of them like, oh god, I love you, you know, like none of that. It just was like, hey, we went through some shit together and we're we're close now and we should just stay close. And I have a reason, you know, born Jason Bourne has a reason to kind of go on now. And it was so like, and just that very reason. And then born supremacy, uh, she is killed and it's like, Oh, it was just so heartbreaking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it wasn't that like, um, giving us the happily ever after or whatever. I mean, um, it, it was just, yeah, it was just really real and just really there. I, I liked it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, well, that was good. And then, but I sort of, the first one, and I liked the way the first one was shot. Um, yeah, yeah whatever reason the second one just got the the shaky cam got a bit got to be a bit too much for me personally um i remember there was one i was sitting in the theater in st louis watching it and just kind of got i just got nauseous and so i, I don't know <laughs> I, I should probably rewatch that second one the third one i liked because it really concluded the story so for me the idea of bringing matt damon back i mean there was that that fourth one that jeremy renner was in which i don't yeah know, which jeremy ties renner. them into the mission impossible universe i guess yeah <laughs> that's a great that's perfect yeah <laughs> jeremy renner is the missing link between these two man they should oh wouldn't that be amazing if they somehow found a way to tie born and mission impossible together and like a, su- <laughs> a super event and it turns out the whole time and then matt damon comes back in and you know they're, like, they're both just ripping face masks off of the other one or something <laughs> awesome. it's, at the end it's just uh ben affleck and matt damon <laughs> <laughs> yeah no at the end it's just fred savage he's like it was me the entire time <laughs> you're like what fred savage where have you been he's like i have been i've been everyone and then he takes his mask off, and it's like, and then go as far as you want. <laughs> um, but no, it's like uh, that fourth that, that that fourth one with Jeremy Renner. Now they're doing a new one with Matt Damon again, which is puzzling because I don't. They unlike James Bond, unlike Mission Impossible, they gave Jason Bourne a very distinctive arc that has ended. So I don't know what else he has to do. Uh, I, I mean, know. he's he's still and kind I, of out there in the world, you know, and uh, you know, doing his thing. So he, they could call him in. You know, almost like Liam Neeson style for hire, maybe. I, but just, I don't think is it going to be as compelling now that we know everything that we need to know about him. I that's a good question, and I never saw the one with Renner in it, so I don't really know. Um, if I recall now, correctly, the Renner one did have a cameo by Matt Damon, so there. That's is... what I was going to ask. Um, but yeah, the, he does appear in it, right? But he's like a public figure at that point. Maybe he's I've not seen underground. It, so I've just seen the trailers, and they're like, "Hey, Matt Damon, remember him?" And now Jason or uh, Jeremy Renner. I'm like, "Oh, yeah. okay, I, I don't care." But all right, eh, you know, um, it's it's funny because I mean, I, I just I certainly hope they're not getting away from that those things that I liked about the first three. But yeah, um, yeah. but obviously, there's reason I didn't see the Renner one. You know, I wasn't so invested in that. <laughs> yeah story thing you know it was like no i i come to see this to see jason bourne not yeah not just you know hawkeye playing jason bourne (laughs) (laughs) oh poor jeremy i love you know truth i mean i actually really liked here's a little trivia for you too jeremy renner in mission impossible i really like him but he was brought in because tom cruise was done he's like i'm gonna be done after this movie 
So we're going to bring in like the guy who's going to replace me and we'll kind of get him acquainted with the audience. But then all of a sudden after Ghost Protocol, Tom Cruise is like, oh, I love this. I don't want to stop. So he's just going to, which is why Jeremy Renner had sort of a reduced role in Rogue Nation. Like he didn't mm. have a lot. He moved, his character moved more into an administrative position in Rogue Nation, which was, it was cool. It fit. It made sense because in, in Ghost <laughs> Protocol, he was introduced as sort of a, an analyst anyway. Um, you know, former agent, now analyst. And so like that made sense, but it, just, it was a little strange to go, oh, okay, so this, all right. Um, but let's 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 kind of keep going through. We had Bourne as a well, we mentioned Tinker Taylor earlier, which yes. I think Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy was such a, the one with Gary Oldman. I believe there's a 60s version. Um, there's a 60s TV show or a 70s TV show that's much revered. And anytime I've discussed Tinker Taylor online or with others, I'm always, there's always kind of these camps of, oh God, the movies. No, not the movie. The series is so good because apparently the series, you know, it was five episodes and took its time and was more loyal to the books, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I might at some point watch the series, but the movie for me was so captivating and wonderful that I don't, I don't have the, I don't think I'll ever need to watch the series personally. Well, the series did have Alec Guinness in it. Huh? Did it really? I didn't know that. So Obi-Wan Kenobi was in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy the miniseries. Who do you, who do you play in the series? Uh, George Smiley. He was Smiley. Wow. He asked John Le Carre to introduce him to a, oh, to the role. Sorry. Wow. I'm reading off of Wikipedia. He asked John Le Carre to introduce him to a real spy to aid him in preparing for his role. I'm surprised they didn't just give that to Christopher Lee since Christopher Lee was a spy and many other things. You know, it's like, God, a, was Lee not in it? How could he not be? That's, that's surprising. He played no, Alec Guinness. It's so crazy. <laughs> Christopher Lee as Alec Guinness as George Smiley. And they just start ripping off masks again. You're like, hey. <laughs> They're all the faceless men. At the bottom is Arya Stark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Maisie, Maisie Williams waves at the camera. And you're like, Maisie Williams is alive in the 60s? What? And the credits start rolling. Like, what, what the hell just happened? And like, nobody believes you because no one else will watch it. Like, yeah. You know, we, uh, like, oh, the series. Oh, my God. You got to watch it. Like, well, I, I, I love the movie with Gary Oldman. I thought it was so well paced and tense, uh, <clears throat> and um, and you and I have talked about it separately before, and probably on podcasts. Like, and it's it's one of those movies that stands out to me too because I saw it in the theater, and uh, it was this, it was this great experience of going to. Um, uh, you and I both talk about like good movie theater experiences. Yes, um, yes, and this was one that I saw. Uh, at one of the uh, uh, luxury cinemas where I was in a leather recliner and had a beer. Ooh. And, you know, it was like, it was like, oh, I'm an adult <laughs> enjoying an adult, you know, film mm -hmm. with other adults. Mm -hmm. Like it was just, you know, there's no kid because the, the theater I went to was like, you know, there's 20, there were 21 and up theaters where you could have uh, alcoholic drinks. Um, so it was great. It was quiet. It was so, uh, it was just a beautiful experience, you know, a really well shot and re well acted film. And man, I loved it. And I also, all -star I, cast too. I mean, all star, oh you had, you had the, you have, it's a who's who. I mean, other than Harry Potter, it's a who's who of British actors. Every, everything from Cumberbatch <laughs> to Tom Hardy to obviously Gary Oldman, Toby Jones. Like you, you can just go on and on and on with the actors that are in this, this movie. Is and, there just, is there just a thing where, where, uh, they go. We're making it a, a movie set in England, 
give us the Harry Potter cast. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> and they're they're all in Game of Thrones. They're all yeah. Harry Potter. They're all yeah. Colin Firth. I mean, like you just the the, the heavy yeah. hitters. Oh, man, Colin Firth is so good in it. Some of these guys in it too had very minor roles too, and they they were very content doing their fulfilling their job. That gives me really good appreciation for. I have a huge appreciation for actors when I see those kinds of those that yeah. caliber of British actor in that movie where it's like I have this very small role, but I'm going to I'm going to make it as as interesting without overshadowing mean, they just do their solid job and they in the movie's better for it you know nobody's trying to everybody kind of fits in their slot when they need to the thing about tinker taylor that really i mean I, the trailers for it were really well done i remember seeing the trailers going and the trailers truth be told made it seem a little bit more action-packed or exciting True. than it was i'm not sad that that didn't happen the movie we got is is fantastic but i went in kind of thinking it might be a little bit faster yeah but pretty quick it makes it they make it apparent that this you know, from the very first shot up through the opening credits, when John Hurt and John Hurt starts off as the the head of the circus or the head of MI, I'm gonna assume it's MI5, which is you know England's obviously you know if you, if you don't know what MI5 is by this point, you know, quit quit listening. But like <laughs> he's because we've been talking about James Bond this entire time. Like I'm kind of well, he's like, actually in MI6. MI6. I'm sorry. Well, okay, never mind. Screw me then. So like, well, it's just the, the head, se- it's the Secret Service versus the. Uh... I guess the un unsecret unsecret circus or circus service circus. <laughs> well, John Hurt's character is dismissed, and he bring he takes George Smiley, who's played by Gary Oldman, with him. He's like Smiley's coming with me, and J- Gary Oldman's like I am, and they take they basically leave. They you know they quit. They resign the same day, and as John Hurt's walking through the entire you know, they they track him walking through the entire building while they do the opening credits so you get right away the tone they introduce the you know a lot of the characters in that in that scene because they you'll get a camera glimpse of Benedict Cumberbatch you'll get a camera glimpse of the other guys so it's like it introduces so much so fast that you're like that's what this that's this kind of movie oh my god so you you you're forced to or invited to I should say you know concentrate and dig in and really you know you lean into this movie pretty hard um because if you don't, I mean, you. I've talked to people who have fallen asleep during it. I've talked to people who, you know, who just did, weren't paying attention. They missed a bunch of stuff. Like you need to be aware and, and engaged for this to be a good movie for you, and you're rewarded as a result. I feel like, but it takes, you know, it takes those quiet character moments that Mission Impossible One again. You know, I'm going to keep going back to that as sort of the model for what you know what you can pull from. There's a lot of those quiet character moments. I am imagining two scenes in Mission Impossible One: the mo- the scene where. Ethan Hunt and Jim Phelps are sitting in the train station and Ethan has figured out Jim's not a good guy anymore. And they're having that quiet moment and they're having that back and forth sort of like that scene feel, felt like a Tinker Taylor scene, you know, with those two guys having this sort of moment, you know, it had a dramatic music behind it, but it was still a very quiet character moment. I'm going to um, have to watch all of MI1 and Tinker Taylor now again, to sort of, refresh it's, my memory there was a lot of that i'm not saying tinker taylor is like we're gonna do it like mission impossible but just like right. the, it, for me again mission impossible opened the door and created this giant broad spectrum for what a spy movie can be and be good and tinker taylor is like well, we're gonna pull from the quiet intentional moments part of that and we're gonna make a really good compelling interesting movie you never see the bad guy's face like the main you know the main sort of bad guy that is the russian equivalent of george smiley he's referred to you see his feet his his you know maybe his waist but you never see his face um and then the reveal of who the actual traitor is is really compelling and really interesting and very realistic um i don't know just everything about it just it, oh, i loved it so much i 
just discovered uh, that was directed by the guy that directed the Swedish film Let the Right One In. Oh, interesting. That crazy vampire film. Wow. Yeah. Well, so that kind of explains some of that tension and stuff like that. I was also this just the set, the scenic design and the production design. Like you watch this movie, and you're like, "There's no way this wasn't shot in the '70s." Like, how on earth? Oh my god, no kidding! How on earth is this a contemporary movie? Every location, every piece of clothing, car, everything is like so period. I'm just like it, it blew my mind because I'm like, where in London did they find all of these things and make them look so consistently? Yeah, part of that part of that world. I mean, and there's subtle. There are really subtle things that I even I'm the first two times I watched it didn't pick out. George Smiley, once he is dismissed or once he's you know forced to resign, the first thing he does is he goes and picks out a new pair of glasses. And that's a very sort of important moment for him putting on this new persona of now having to investigate the, the company that he just left. And so that pair of glasses mm-hmm. is a very intentional thing that I didn't even, I mean, I, I caught it, but I didn't never thought of it in that way until like yeah. the fourth or fifth time I watched it. I was like, oh my God, he's picking out these <laughs> That's an important scene. So like little things like that, you can watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy dozens of times and it can you, you'll find things every time you never saw the first time and it just makes it a richer experience every watch. I love, if we go back to the beginning and what I want from a spy movie, I don't think there can be anything better than that. I think if you can create a movie experience that is that layered and that yeah. nuanced, you can still provide action, you can still provide pacing and all that. But if you, if I can rewatch a spy movie again and again and be like, oh my god, oh my god, and just pick out these things that I never saw before because there's so much, um, that's that to me is the the true sort of success of the genre. Well, and I think when uh, you know back on that that topic of like what you know what we want out of a spy movie or something, and when I think of what got me into it, and especially when I was reading the original like James Bond novels when I was a kid, and mm-hmm. there was uh, I I as much as I hate bureaucracy and, you know, like uh, portrayals of it and, and the frustration, frustrating machinations of it. Um, there is something so interesting about the humdrumness of, you know, of, of the bureaucrats who are doing the spy work and stuff. And mm-hmm. what I remember from those early James Bond movies is, or sorry, from the books is that there's a whole lot of like him putting on a suit and going to play cards with, the gentleman at the club to get information, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, um, it, it's not this modern version of him, like, you know, <laughs> hopping online and going through his, you know, <laughs> secret profile hacking or whatever. It's like, yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of just like going out in the streets and talking to the guy, you know, having a drink with him or smoking a cigarette or smoking 400 cigarettes or whatever he did. Well, um, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause the other movie that does that really well is the Robert Redford, um, Brad Pitt movie spy game. Very, I feel like Spy Game is the modern American successor to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's like they they looked at that one. How can we make a similar kind of movie that's still original but very much rooted in that that space? Because a lot of that movie takes place in a conference room. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm, that's one I'm like to, I'm totally unfamiliar with. So so it's really good. It, it came out I think around the same time as the first Born movie. So there's a lot of cinematography and everything, but it, it fits into that that sort of vibe really well. Um, that kind of that early aughts spy movie sort of you know, vibe and everything. But it's like, it's Brad Pitt. Robert Redford is on his last day at the CIA and Brad Pitt oh, does okay. something really stupid and gets caught and they're investigating it and they bring Robert Redford's character in to try to get some intel into why Brad Pitt did what he did. 
and and Robert Redford realizes that the end that the conclusion of this is they're going to kill they're either going to let Brad Pitt get killed by the Chinese or they're going to hang him out to dry you know in a public hearing or something like some it's going to end bad for Brad Pitt so the entire time Robert Redford is trying to play the character of giving them what they want in these conference room sessions all the while while he's still in the because as soon as he leaves he has to turn in his card and everything because it's his last day so he has to stay on campus and try to figure out a way to help brad pitt this entire time and then while that sort of sequence of events is going on it's flashing back on his relationship with brad pitt how they met how he trained him so you're getting a lot of that sort of the normal sort of spy international kind of flavor that you're used to but it's very much this movie that's very character driven very much people you know people doing nuanced things there's not like you know high technology that can help them do anything and everything a lot of a lot of the way that robert redford robert redford's character ends up helping helping brad pitt is old school techniques and old school you know fax machines and and, and ways of disguising paper and documents and back channeling and you know negotiations over phone and all that kind of stuff that's it if you watch it today it's kind of a refreshing analog way of doing you know, spycraft, which I, you know, and I think that was yeah. intentional. Even in yeah. 2001, they're like, they looked at, you know, like a lot of these movies are getting a little silly. We kind of want to ground it more in, you know, what, what would yeah. a guy do without access to his normal stuff? How would he help, help his friend? And it's really cool. Man, I got to check that out now because that, what you just said there reminds me of one of my favorite movies of all time <laughs> that it's, it's one of those things where it's, it feels like only, uh, my dad and I are aware of it, which is this movie called No Way Out with Kevin Costner. Where, I have not heard of this. Oh my God, it is so good. Um, Where is, is it? Definitely a spy movie. Um, Seven. Oh. In the bureaucracy. Uh, is it 87? Is that what you said? 87, yeah. Yeah, Gene Hackman is um, Secretary of Defense, maybe, something like that. Oh, I have um, seen a clip of this on TV. And it is, so, it is such a good... Um, uh, oh man, what is that? Uh, uh, you know what? Uh, there's a there's a uh, uh, an industry term for when there's like a TV show that takes place all in one room. I think it's uh, I think it's a capsule episode or something like that. Oh sure, it's, yeah, it's something yeah. like that. But they um, but that's basically what it is. So it's like they they basically just um turn up the heat in the Pentagon because they know um at one point at least you know there's there's things that happen outside of the pentagon over this the course of the days but it's one of those great things where there's a ticking clock it's like we know by this hour we're going to have information and we've got to you know find this person before that information is revealed and then at one point they literally like lock the doors of the pentagon you know to search for this guy and wow it's just it's i mean it is so tense and it is so well done and it's got um it's it, it has exactly what you described in spy game where it's all the sort of um, there's God. Now that I think of it, it's just so genius. There's a bunch of the the gadgetry of, the, of spy craft. You know, the computers and the there's a photo scanner that's scanning in a picture of their suspect, and and there's a, a printer that's you know printing out this list of gifts that they need. But it's all sort of that '80s stuff. So it's going yeah, very slowly, yeah. and it's literally like I guess underground. And so all the actual action of the movie is interpersonal. You know. And I, I mean, I, I, for most of the movie, uh, Kevin Costner doesn't even have a sidearm. Like he, there's no, you know, he's, he's not even carrying a gun. Like, and he's running around in his, in his dress whites cause he's in the Navy. Um, and it's just, it's just that great, that perfect blend of like 
of of the you know the machine in motion and the bureaucracy and a, a guy trying to fight his way out of it and then it just has this amazing twist in it and it's just so oh, so man. good all right we're and gonna have to each go off you watch I know, Spy Game, I i'll watch that because i i have seen maybe a, a, a clip of that on tv couldn't sit down and couldn't watch it so oh, i vaguely totally worth it because if you're if you're it's one of those totally that you can write off because if you're if you if you don't know that there's going to be a good payoff it's kind of yeah. like eh. it you know it yeah. starts out kind of slow it's <clears throat> you know you don't really know what the the point of it is but um but it definitely captured that you know into the cold war uh paranoia and just matched it with this you know this I mean, it's just such a great sensibility. So it's it's wow. really, really worth checking out. And I would definitely include it in the spy genre. I mean, it absolutely fits in the spy genre, even though, it, you know, at first you don't know how. And, I, and I'm 90% confident it's on Hulu. So oh, nice. Hulu even better. Because that's where I last watched it. Like, in the last year, I've watched it. So, um, well done, Hulu. Hulu's about to get a bunch of Netflix stuff, too, FYI. And they're about to get rid of commercials. Yeah, yeah. They're finally well. What's just, the sad part about that is Hulu. The original version of Hulu, there there was a non-commercial part of it that was there for like a brief little bit, and they took that away. Right. Um. Anyway, so I I'll have to definitely check that out. What's yeah, um? No let's out. let's talk though. So so those Spy Game and No Way Out are two spy movies that never really intended to be franchises. There was not like a there's right. not like this impetus to be like this is going to be Spy Game. You know there'll be Spy Game five and six eventually. And that was never part of the plan, and I appreciate that fact because when it's done, the story's done, and you you have a dis- definitive sense of that, and you can appreciate it knowing that okay these characters are going to go off. Anything else is in my mind's eye. That's awesome. What about movies though that didn't that, that that came out you know that wanted to be there was a there was an intention a clear intention that these were supposed to be franchises that did not it did not happen that way. <laughs> well, I think the funniest one is the one <laughs> you put on our list, which is the Saint. Yeah, yeah. With as I recall, Val Kilmer. Yep. Yep. And I don't. I never even saw it. I don't remember anything about that. Now let's not rag on the Saint. I, you know, it it has its charm. It came out the the year after Mission Impossible. So there's again, there's a there's a big sort of uh, you know desire to mimic tone, and there's a lot of shots that could have been right out of De Palma's playbook, um, which is cool. It it tried so hard though. You you can tell baked into the DNA of this movie is this is going to be a franchise and he the saint is going to be this right. is the first saint movie and I forget what the guy's the character's name actually is. It had Elizabeth Shue in it. She's charming. It, it's a charming little movie. I think I don't think it got as much. You know, it might have worked better. You know, ten years later actually than that. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. It wasn't as corny as the bras and stuff. So it kind of it kind of straddled that middle line, right? So it was like there was some cheesy stuff and. There was a weird moment or two in it where it's like all of a sudden he retires from being a spy and they go off to the country <laughs> and you're like what is this like it just had, there's kind of a, there's weird sort of pacing moments and then they come when they rein it back in again it's fine um, it also includes that actor and I'm, I hate that I don't remember his name there's there's this Russian actor who's always like the cliche Russian general or Russian villain that that was the first time I remember seeing him too. He plays like the the father of the of the mafia uh, clan. That's sort of the the antagonist of the whole thing. Um, that guy's really good. So there's a lot about it. But you that movie ends with like a massive wink to the audience, like stay tuned, there will right. be more. And you're just like and you're like no, there's not. And so like you you get the sense that leaving that movie every time you watch it, you're like there uh, just you you kind of feel depressed because like there was never there was never a follow up. And they sort of they they so wanted there to be, um, and I haven't seen the man from Uncle yet, but I've heard that there's 
they were really angling for that one to. Oh, to f- I mean, they've got to be aiming, angling for that to become a franchise, right? I would and, think so. I mean, it's got two, two. I mean, two name brand actors at this point. Which, which begs that question that I always ask, which is like, why, why are we trying to make everything a franchise? And I mean, I think yeah. some of the movies we've pointed out that are we're clearly passionate about: Tinker Tailor, Spy Game, No Way Out. Like these are movies that could not like they're they're good because they could not be franchises yes, you know exactly. um and then there's a movie like the saint which is uh probably in some respects at least those of you described like it's bad because it was trying to be a franchise you know yeah. it's yep. um so that's i you know it's um i really like what's his name i'm gonna call him superman uh henry cavill, <laughs> henry cavill uh, yeah. yeah but he uh but, you know, I'm, I just think it's so strange to, especially when they, and this is what I thought when they made Mission Impossible, which was like, why try to reboot a franchise that we obviously, we recognize the name of, but we mm-hmm. don't, know, we don't have any connection to it. Yeah. You know, yeah it's like that's, that's people who point. are old enough to remember Man from Uncle don't know who the hell Henry Cavill is or Cavill. Well, be, I mean, let's, it's interesting because Mission Impossible 1 came out, I think, eight years. I think it was 88 was the last special or TV incarnation of the of the Mission Impossible TV series. Because I think that you know the series was like late eighties, late seventies, early eighties, and they did like a series of like one off like special event kinds of things. I think that last one was eighty eight. So there's you know if you're paying attention there there's some carryover there. I never watched the T V series until after the fact. So Man, um, I had no idea it went on that late. I went on you know I went to the movie fresh like this is yeah. this is my Mission Impossible. Man from Uncle like I you know, I didn't even know that was a, I mean, as, as kind of tuned into this stuff as I am in pop culture and just these kinds of things. And I had no idea that was even a show. I was just like, man, from uncle, I thought that was just an original. <laughs> I was kind of excited. Cause I'm like, Oh, cool. An original spot. Oh no, it's not. It's a rehash of the show. I mean, I'm sure it looks good. I'm, I'll probably see it in the next week or two, but I just don't, you know, these movies that try to be franchises from the outset, there's, you know, especially when they're, especially when they're like, if this makes money, we'll keep going. And they sort of plant those yeah. seeds in there. But the, the uh, it, either be confident and, and purposely, you know, cut it off to the point where like there, there has to be a second one because the story has not ended. Like yeah. that, I, I respect the hell out of that. You know, if that's, if that's your intention, tell a story in four or five parts or three parts or whatever it is, do that. Don't be like, well, we like this and we hope you do too. And if so, yeah. you know, like I feel like the man from uncle might have some of that you know, well done or not, it is just that might be. That might yeah, be I, I, yeah, I'm gonna harp on this, like bringing up, uh, resurrecting shows from from the the dead to be like new, I, and you know, it's uh, we will we'll have some Hollywood episode where we'll have to talk about that a little bit more and why, um, why these properties that studios own, they just feel like they have to make a film probably to preserve the rights or something yeah. for all eternity or whatever, but, um. <laughs> whatever you were just saying reminded me that they actually remade the mod squad <laughs> with Claire. Did they really? What? Yeah. yeah. She was in a movie called the mod squad. When? Uh, oh man. What alternate like, earth was this? I don't even two thousands or something like that. I don't remember this being a thing at all. Oh was yeah. That during, like the Charlie's angels heyday where they're like a women action hero stuff here. Claire Danes. What was, are you uh, up to? That's a good point. It might have been Charlie Saint. Well, it was '99, uh, and okay. it had Omar Epps and Giovanni Ribisi in it. So, uh, of course, there was definitely, and you know, I mean, it was, it, I, whatever. You know, who, <laughs> who cares? I don't understand. I don't, I don't get remaking that stuff. But I guess the other point is 
because it has to be like Mission Impossible where you get three films in before you've reestablished like a new timeline, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, if, if you do fade out with the one, I mean, The Saint was a remake, you That's know, true. or reboot. Yeah. So if you're just rebooting these like 70-year-old characters, I mean, nobody cares, like unless you you get enough time to tell that story so it's yeah, yeah. it's just such a weird thing so i mean maybe man for uncle i mean maybe it's i haven't seen what it's doing box office wise maybe it does well maybe it does well enough on vod and on demand that it kicks up another one um I, i've seen really positive twitter comments about it um you know to to the, like to the point that i i'm sure of at least you know one person i follow who was has seen it a couple of times and oh wow um so i you know i i feel like that's a pretty good endorsement of like it's a solid film um you know? I'm gonna be really picky though. That kind of a movie, just the way I've the way it's presented to me in marketing and trailers, it feels more like a really solid fall movie and not an end of summer movie. And I don't quite like that's the kind of thing that I would love to see like a month from now. I'm like, sure they had to position it because of Bond and oh, you know, sure fade out of of <laughs> the you know the superstar <laughs> that was Fantastic Four. <laughs> They're probably like, where else were we supposed to put it? Like that was literally the only spot that made sense. Like I, exactly. Probably. And you know what? Um, uh, as you talk about fall movies and we talk about these realistic movies and stuff, one that we forgot from our outline uh, when we were talking about this episode is uh, Tom Hanks Spielberg have, you know, have a new collaboration coming out called Bridge of Spies, yes. which is another Cold War story, which I am so excited about, you know. God, I only uh, saw the trailer for that the other day. I forgot all about that. I forgot about it too until we were like in the midst of talking. And uh, yeah, I'm, that's one I'm, I'm really excited about. But well, the other big question we posed, I don't want to get too off topic with that, is yeah. um, where are the female-led spy movies? Yes. Because it definitely yes. seems like this is, that that is a missing component. Um, and the one that I immediately threw out when we were talking about this was this is such an amazing opportunity for Marvel to do Black Widow as a spy movie, as mm -hmm. like a dark, quiet, no superpowers spy movie. You know, yeah. no Hulk yeah. shows up, no, you know, <laughs> yeah. no Asgardian demigod <laughs> flies in, you know, changes the weather. But just do it, just do it right. Like just do a, a just do a Cold War quiet movie with um well that's Black Widow. that would be so amazing you know i forget where you stand on this but that was probably my my favorite moments from age of ultron were the flashbacks on natasha's training like in the red room or whatever that was like I, i'm like ooh, this is wow and you get to see kind of what she had to go through at a young age and all that kind of like show us more of that world you know where she's have she's behind the scenes having to make these tough choices deal with her deal with her past self you know you can you can have the trope of of you know agent against the machine or agent against the system i mean the marvel world has kind of set that up to be a recurring thing whenever they want it to be a thing yeah. um but show I me mean, i would even want to see uh, personally i would want to see a black widow movie pre-avengers pre-iron man 2 even mm. where we get to see i mean so so there's not even to, to to accommodate your need of no powers like let's drop her into a world before any of those people even showed up so there's no excuse they can't be like <laughs> why is the hulk not there you know like this is before all that. And yeah. Scarlett Johansson's still young enough to, to play, you know, eight to 10 years younger. I, that will be, there's no, no one will care. Um, I, I just, I, I, as much as I want to, I, as much as I do agree with you there, I just, there's no way that Marvel's going to do that. Oh, like not, the way not, that the MCU is running forwards at all times, they just can't, you know, go back. That's well, like, the MCU, 
it feels like to me the MCU is is they they are they are sort of sensing the burnout factor coming, and it looks yeah. like everything from this point forward is going to be about how many characters can we put in a single movie at a single time, and just it's all going to consolidate <laughs> like a reverse like the reverse Big Bang. It's going to be the big crunch, and it's just going to end. Every, you know, I, I'm really curious if Doctor Strange isn't going to fit, you know, feature four or five other characters in weird cameos or something. It's just like they're trying to hamstring that in. But I would love to see. And I was thinking when you mentioned that, when you mentioned, um, you know, female-led spy movies, I started thinking back. Like we really haven't had in movies anyway, hardly anything. I mean, Rebecca Ferguson in Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation this summer was amazing. She's probably the best part of that movie. Um, which, which makes me want to go out and see it, you know, because it's it's definitely that feeling of like, as I do like Tom Cruise movies, <laughs> yeah. but I don't run out and see them, and um, I just you know I like him in a movie when when I see it, but uh, but to know that there's something else drawing me there besides Jeremy Renner and Tom Cruise is like, oh, that's that's a great reason to go see it. So you could have taken honestly, and I'm sure someone will do this. Someone will have, there will be a fan edit of Rogue Nation without Tom, like taking Tom Cruise out, where it's just Rebecca. Ferguson doing her thing and like it would still be a movie it would be a cohesive movie um so i would love and so god bless them for doing that but i was like other than that like when was the last time we really had a female-led spy series or spy movie and it and it was, I know. the movies there's not much but tv I, obviously alias yeah, was, that was that's a great kind a, of the big one, one that, yeah and another and jj abrams you know J.J. Uh-huh. Abrams, which is why I wish, and maybe maybe he was partly responsible for because he produces all the Mission Impossible movies now. Maybe he was responsible for Rebecca Ferguson. I'd like to think so. Um, I, don't, I don't know anything about Dollhouse, but I know that was Dollhouse. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, La Femme, the various versions of La Femme Nikita or Nikita or whatever it's called now, like those, yeah. all do it. Um, you could argue that. that oh, good. Yeah. Another another weird thing that's like you know been retconned or rebooted or whatever from its you know the original french film um it, like so many times and it's just it's such a weird property to like to hang on to mm-hmm. but god bless them for making a yeah. you know a female centric you know uh action piece like that i mean that's, i mean sarah from chuck you know, the show chuck um yeah. it's pretty badass but the thing about these characters rebecca ferguson's a very pretty woman but she's not like it's not like they threw Jessica Alba in that role. You know, there's somebody who's like, you know, hot first and an actress second. Like Rebecca Ferguson's like actress first, pretty set. You know, she's, she's a beautiful person, but she's, she's an actress. You can tell that. And I keep thinking like, what if, I, th- I feel like we sort of missed a perfect opportunity to put someone like Emma Thompson, you know, in the early 2000s, throw Emma Thompson in a, in a leading, you know, in a leading role in a spy movie. That's not like the the Avenger, you know, like the British yeah. Avengers or something like that, where she's twirling an umbrella or something. Like, put her in an actual movie where she has to use classic spy craft and you know makeup and and you know personalities and you know all of that stuff, that really low key stuff with you know no crazy technology. Put her in one of those that could have worked really well. You know, well, she could have been Jason, you know, female Jason Bourne at some and point. That's I, and when when we started uh, brainstorming about this that is what the debt is if you haven't seen it where it's Helen Mirren as an Israeli agent. Seriously? Who, yep. That yeah. exists. That that yeah. concept is a th- And it's on Netflix and what? she's recounting a mission that she went on in the 60s or 70s no. um, and so when the flashbacks it's Jessica Chastain as um or as I know her, uh, Blythe House Howard. Blythe uh, House Howard. <laughs> I am not Jessica Chastain. <laughs> Blythe House Howard as Jessica Chastain as Helen Mirren. 
You've heard that song, by the way, the I'm Not Jessica Chastain song. I have not, but I have go to seen YouTube. the other When we're done with this, go to YouTube and type in I Am Not Jessica Chastain. There's a music video that exists that sounds like Bryce Dallas Howard singing it to the point where her father, Ron Howard, thought that she had actually made this video herself. And she's wow. singing about how she's not Jessica Chastain and how she's everybody confuses them. It's really funny. Well, she but, is in the debt. Oh, just Justine, that is. But anyway, it's yeah, it's a it, oh, it's a good movie. It's a very much along the lines of. Oh, Kieran Hines is in that too. Oh, I'm I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, it's uh, it's real good. Um, and and then I brought up this other one that it, it is along the Black Widow lines, which was Haywire with uh, Gina Carano, which I'm a fan of because I'm a fan of Steven Soderbergh, and I mm-hmm. I love that it's this quiet, you know, again like no gadgetry kind of um, movie. It's not really a spy movie. I mean, it's a government contractor who kind of goes rogue and stuff like that, but it's, um, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, it, it felt very much when I was watching it, like the, the, a female led born movie. You wow. Know? Um, so that's, so, so basically those, these are exactly what I'm describing. They already exist. They're just not as well. I mean, I, I am sad that I did not realize the debt was this. I mean, it came out five years ago, but I mean, I, this should have been on my radar. Um, it was weird. It was way under the radar. You know, I, I have no idea why I ended up seeing it. I saw it in the theater, um, uh, but it was, yeah, it was definitely under the radar. Um, do you think, do you think that the reason, I mean, do you think that the spy genre in its in its popular form, like when people think of spy movies, that there's just this institutionalized. It has to be a it has to be a dude. Like we just can't. I, like, I mean, I, I mean, come on, it's got to be. I mean, I think it. Yeah, that is. I mean, especially because, uh, what really makes a spy movie is that it's happening in an institution. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, I just thought of another great one that's not a spy movie, but uh, Hannah. <laughs> Have you seen that with the, oh my God, it's so good. Another, um, you know, another strong female lead. um, uh, Oh, Eric Bana is in it. Oh my God, Um, Kate Blanchett's in that one. Yeah, and uh, uh, Saoirse Ronan and Kate Blanchett. Yeah, it's, um, oh my God, it's so good. Yeah, but it's it's kind of a, um, it's kind of a born thing. There's sort of a, you've been trained since birth for this, role that you don't know about mm-hmm. um and her father had you know quit a secret agency and uh um so kate blanchett is like coming in trying to uh, you know bring them both back in to the so it's definitely like that born feeling but anyway back to your point i think that's exactly it because we're talking about this old institution that's traditionally men mm. and that's just sort of baked into the dna of a spy movie you know mm-hmm. which is which mm-hmm. is which has got to be ridiculous, like in real terms, you know, at this present day, like we, we know there have to be female spies. Why are there not well, female led spy movies? Why is there not some, you know, franchise of that? To me, I mean, uh, Ailey's did this, you know, fairly well itself, but to me, females are far more interesting. You know, you, you females can disguise themselves much more, in, you know, much more convincingly. Like, you know, you can throw a wig and a beard on Tom Cruise, but it's still Tom Cruise. Like you can, <laughs> women can, women can like, you know, they can, they can very, very subtly adjust their appearance and they're a completely different person. Like, so just that level of spy craft in general is, is really compelling. And then you, you, I feel I'm like, like, like you tiptoeing around like a gigantically accidentally sexist remark. And I'm just trying to like, I'm trying not to, well, I'm just, I'm just saying, 
You can you it you watch any spy movie where a dude has to go in disguise and it's kind of these ham fisted these these lame attempts. I mean, granted, there's been some really good ones, but there's a lot of these are just really lame attempts to disguise it. Whereas women can they're much more malleable in that you know, they can be they can be a man can't pretend to be a woman undercover. A woman there's could pretend to be a man. Oh man, I mean you want to talk about like uh, genre conventions and stuff like that. It's definitely more accepted when we watch, I, I think this is where you're getting at, when we watch uh, a, a woman um, uh, change her appearance, it's done through makeup or something. And when we watch a man change his appearance in a spy movie, it's some stupid rubber mask that he rips off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I think that's, there's, uh, that's, man, that's such a, like, in, that's such an interesting, like, uh, genre, or pff, what am I trying to say? Gender role, too, is I, that they don't, they don't, you know, it, it would be sort of, too feminine or something to watch Tom Cruise put on a bunch of makeup to look yep. like someone, you know, yep. so they give him these masks or whatever. They give him these masks and it's sexy <laughs> as hell when women have to like do tech, you know, like they, they do smart tech things. And as I'm saying all this, there's a big, there also in 2010, um, same year that, um, that, uh, that Helen Mirren movie came out, the debt came out. Um, salt came out. Remember that with Angelina? Oh, man, good point. I had completely We're totally going off on a crazy tangent now. Yeah. Well, and as I was as I was saying this out loud, I'm like, this where have I seen this before? Of course Angelina Jolie goes on, you know, she changes her appearance very subtly throughout that thing. And Salt was a yep. movie and that you may or may not know this, originally meant for a male lead. Yes. They may have even offered it to Tom Cruise or you know at that point and I forget how it changed or how it happened, but they're like, "Oh god, we got to we have to give this Somebody, somebody made a passion, impassioned case for give this to a woman. Angelina Jolie is up to the task. It has to be a woman. We can't just we can't throw another dude in these movies. Yeah, and it was, um, and I believe it. I'm, I'm looking it up. I, it was uh, looks like it was pitched to Tom Cruise. Um, he may have even said it too. I, from what I remember, yeah. like there was an interview where they're like, I either him or the producer, the director's like, I was offered this, but I was like, it can't be. I can't. This has to be a woman, which I'm, you go back and watch it and you're like, how can this not be a woman? Like this, this looks like it was made for a, a female lead. Um, and I'm, I bring this up only because that was a movie that could have been a franchise that sort of had the seeds of a franchise baked into it, but there wasn't this massive, there wasn't as big of a wink to the audience as like the saint had. Um, so you can watch it and it can exist as a standalone movie, but if they had continued to make more, it would have been fine. Um, you know, we're five years away. They could make another one fairly easily. You know, there was yeah. four years and then six years between Mission Impossible. So this could be, maybe Angelina Jolie's the one. Maybe she's the one that can, if they do another one. I just hate yeah. Lee F. Shriver, so I wasn't, there was that element. That element <laughs> was sort of lost on me. Um, oh my God, Chiwetel Ejiofor was in that too. I didn't know that. Directed by the guy who directed The Saint. What? No, not really. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Philip Noyce. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> Man. So we could totally go off on this huge tangent. I feel like we should wrap it up. We've hit this. Uh, yeah. You know, we've <laughs> before we <laughs> accidentally leave you, say something. We'll leave you the loyal listener to think about that one. Mull that over in the time uh, between now and our next uh, our next podcast. Yes. Um, man, I don't I don't know how to take it out from there. I mean, that's like such a. Um, we we get into the dream casting moments, and we could go all night. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I, yeah. let's just say this: watch the debt, watch um, Hannah, watch yeah. Time Game, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and yeah. No Way Out. Do we? No say Way Out. It's definitely yeah. watching that one. 
Yeah. Um, watch all these movies. God, I, anything you've suggested, you know, since we talked about James Bell, like, oh, I love it. Cause I haven't seen half of these and they all sound exactly like the kind of thing I'm looking for. So this is good. Yeah, this I'm is excited good to go back and now see how the next 80 minutes of mission. Impossible is. <laughs> the post <laughs> next sandwich. sandwich. Yeah, you better post- eat that sandwich slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like I was. I was like, there was something really exciting, but I just ran out of mayo, so I had to stop. Um, I'm <laughs> I'll tell you what shocked me from the. Not that we need to keep talking about this, but it was like the Mission Impossible comes on. You know, I'm, I'm biting into the sandwich, and <laughs> fucking <laughs> Emilio Estevez shows up, and I had totally forgotten that he was in that movie. <laughs> Which is sad like, because he was. He's a true fact. He's uncredited in that movie. He like dies that, in like five minutes. I know, but it always bugged me because I, w- I would wait till the credits and you go to IMDb. I think he might finally have been on IMDb, but you watch the credits and he's not in it. And you're like, and I'm sitting there as a little 14-year-old me going, did I, just, did I dream that? Was, is, that is, is that somebody else that's not Emilio Estevez? That is Emilio Estevez, isn't it? He, that was him, right? And you, sure enough, later on, when, you know, once the internet became a thing, I can go, oh, no, that was him. But Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, I, I, that is one of those like, that is funny to think that in the 90s, you could do a role that brief <laughs> and not be credited and, and people are like... Oh, dude, now that, if I that were today, him? they'd throw him in the trailer and be like, featuring Emilio Estevez. Like, he'd be yeah. hitting on the bill <laughs> just because it'd be so shocking when he died. You'd be like, oh my God, what's what's going to happen now? Like, that would be their that would be their whole marketing gimmick. I Even in 95, man, I don't know what the Emilio draw was. <laughs> Oh, he was still hot. I mean, Mighty Ducks. I, I like, I like the guy. I, 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 mean, I mean, you know, he was great in Minute Work. <laughs> oh, God, I haven't even seen that one. I'm, I, for me, Emilio is Mighty Ducks and maybe a couple other things, and that's probably... Yeah, well, speaking of spy movie franchises, Mighty Ducks, which I have still not seen any of. <laughs> so we'll just we'll button it up with there because you, you chastised me one time for not seeing any Mighty Ducks. I was like, I'm So, Yeah. Excellent. Anyway. On that note, right. uh, cool. it's been fun, man. Let's let's. I uh, can't wait to do this again. So hypothetically, we have a new website set up as we record this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know the domain name though. Uh, Toddandtaylor.com. Yes. Okay. Find us at Toddandtaylor.com. Find me at HeyTodA on Twitter, um, or at hey, or HeyTodA.com. And uh, where can we find you, Mr. Taylor? Uh, I am. Taylor Trask on Twitter, and you can also find me at just simply taylortrask.com. Although I don't post there as much, so Twitter and then the show website are the best places to find me. Cool. Thanks for listening this far. If you've made it to uh, episode two, Todd and Taylor Show, season one, episode two, um, please check us out at toddandtaylor.com and uh, listen to all our past episodes and find out what's coming up next. Yeah, and let us know too what you if if there's any of these movies you like or have seen, or if there's other movies we haven't talked about. Definitely let us know in the comments section or tweet us and, and uh, we'll definitely we'll definitely incorporate that into future episodes and future blog posts and all that good stuff. So anyway, from me, Taylor Trask, and from you, Todd A. We'll see you next time. Later. <laughs>